Hi, I'm Paul Constant. I am a writer at Civic Ventures. Today, I'm going to be talking to Kitty Richards. Kitty is the policy consultant and strategic advisor for Groundwork Collaborative. And we are going to be talking about an exciting report that she recently authored for the Roosevelt Institute. It's titled Bolstering State Economies by Raising Progressive Taxes. And it explains that the only way out of the recession that has been brought on by coronavirus is by keeping essential spending rather than cutting budgets and raising taxes on the rich to pay for it. Might sound simple and straightforward to listeners of this podcast, but I can assure you that I know some uh, Republicans and some Democrats who haven't quite gotten this literal memo. We were all very excited when this report came out because it really thinks through an appropriate response to help the most people and to create the speediest recovery from this recession. And so I was really excited to have a chance to talk to Kitty about that and sort of expand on the ideas in the report. And so here's our conversation. My name is Kitty Richards. I am a senior strategic advisor with the Groundwork Collaborative and a fellow at the Roosevelt Institute. So you recently published an issue brief with the Roosevelt Institute about the unprecedented revenue shortfall state and local governments are facing and how and how not to mitigate this crisis. It's kind of like austerity versus pro-growth investments writ large. Could I ask you to sort of briefly summarize the report and the takeaways so that our listeners are up to speed before we start digging into it? Absolutely. So as you said, state and local governments are facing really unprecedented revenue shortfalls. As the economy has collapsed along with the pandemic, so have tax collections uh, at both the state and local level. And states and localities are responsible for a lot of the kind of most visible and important services that a lot of Americans rely on. So the two biggest budget items for state budgets are healthcare and education. They are also responsible for wastewater infrastructure, drinking water infrastructure, transportation, just a host of the things that government provides to people every day that are really important to the functioning of their lives. And so when states and localities lose revenue at this rate, they're faced with some budget choices that are really difficult. And there's been rightly a lot of focus on the federal government stepping in because the federal government, unlike most states and localities, can borrow money. States and localities issue bonds for big capital projects pretty regularly, but they don't do the kind of deficit spending that the federal government is able to do. And so it's really, really important that the federal government step in with what's called state fiscal relief. And there have been moves to do that in Congress, but so far they've been mostly stymied. But states will still have to react. And they're going to have to react partly because they've already had to pass their budgets for the coming fiscal year. Many states started their fiscal year on July 1st. And because this is going to be a significant problem, even if the federal government steps in. So what I wanted to write about was there's this really unfortunate trend at the state and local level of thinking that what we should do is immediately begin to cut services when we're short on revenue, when in fact, most states and localities have a lot of room to raise taxes, especially on their wealthiest residents. 
And in a time of a global pandemic, we should be expanding services, especially to those who are most affected by the pandemic and those who are most in need of government services, not cutting them. And it's actually bad for state economies to reduce spending on core government services and to cut programs that affect people who really need that money in order to make rent, in order to go to the grocery store, spend money in their local economy, provide you know, adequate child care for their kids, these really important functions for families are often supported by the state. And when the state steps back, it's really, really damaging to families, to communities, to children, and also to the state economy. So I tried to explain in the issue brief why states should not be cutting services, why they should in fact rely on raising revenues, not just to close their budget shortfalls, but to actually expand services, and why that's important not just for state residents, but for state economies and state budgets as well. In a lot of ways, it seems like what states did to respond to the Great Recession of 2008-2009 was almost a roadmap of what not to do, at least that's my takeaway on on this. Um, I was wondering if you could talk through some of the ways that state and local governments created the vulnerable and fragile recovery um, after the Great Recession, if you agree with that assessment. <laughs> sure. States were put in a really difficult position early in the Obama administration, the um, American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, the 2009 stimulus bill was passed, and it actually had a significant chunk of state fiscal relief, um, mostly in the form of increases to payments for states for the Medicaid program, and also some money for education, basically the two largest line items in state budgets. Unfortunately, that fiscal relief ran out very quickly. And there was hope that Congress would pass more fiscal relief, but that didn't happen after the political winds changed in 2010. And so states and localities were left with these yawning budget gaps. And that lasted for years. I think one thing it's important for listeners to remember is that even once the recession ends, there are going to be long lasting consequences for state and local budgets as tax revenues ramp up only slowly with the recovery. And so in the recovery from the Great Recession, we ended up in a situation where states and localities, some took a mixed approach, some did in fact raise revenues, but they relied very heavily on cuts to services. And that's had lasting impact on the U.S. economy. So you know, one report from the Economic Policy Institute indicates that if state and local spending had recovered consistent with historical precedent, so if it had recovered and then kept growing along with the trends that existed before the recession, state and local spending would have been $800 billion higher in 2013 alone. That would have supported an additional 8 million jobs for an unemployment rate of 4.4%. So we would have had a recovery to very low unemployment in 2013. And instead, the recovery was delayed by four years to 2017 by the just grinding austerity that was going on in the state and local level. That's an important point because I think we tend to put our crises in, in sort of separate buckets when we think about them. And I think that a lot of our response to the coronavirus economic downturn has been harmed by our response to the Great Recession. 
the cuts, some of the cuts have not even come back. Isn't that right? That's exactly right. And if you take a look at just public K through 12 education, employment in public K through 12 education never recovered after the Great Recession, despite the fact that school enrollment, the number of kids going to school in those states, grew substantially. It's now significantly lower than its lowest point during the last downturn, because you know, as of mid-May, when schools were still in session, states had already laid off more than 750,000 K through 12 education employees just in this in this pandemic. Now, the common response that you hear when when you hear that that income is down is that well, in my house, we would have to cut the budget. You know, if 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 uh, if my wife or I were to lose work, then we would have to stop going to the movies or or trim our grocery budget. But the economy doesn't work like a household budget. Can you talk about why that is? Maybe the mechanics behind why treating the economy like a household budget isn't a good idea? Absolutely. There, there are a few reasons. One thing, when we talk about the household budget, I do think that it's a great example. And it's something I want to even push back against in the way that it was just framed. Absolutely. If my budget dropped, I would stop going to the movies. But the services that states and localities provide to their citizens are not movies and popcorn, right? They are really, really important supports for people's lives, for future economic growth, and for all of the activities that workers need to engage in in order to participate in the economy. So one piece of it is just that if you lost your job and you had a credit card available to you, you might stop going to the movies and getting popcorn, but you wouldn't stop feeding your children and you wouldn't stop paying your rent unless you really couldn't make do. And so a first piece is just really understanding how critical the services that we're talking about are to the residents of these states. But the bigger picture is that first, the federal government has a lot of ability to borrow they don't have to charge things on high interest credit cards. They're able to borrow at very, very low interest rates and really use that borrowing to smooth out the economic ups and downs so that the economy doesn't fall into a spiral in which the pain that's being caused within families and communities ripples out into the broader economy and causes more problems. That's another piece of the puzzle, the reason that it's so important to treat government budgets differently from family budgets is that you have to look at the ways in which the impacts on individual families and individual workers ripple out from them into their communities and into the economy. So when a public school teacher is laid off and loses her job, that impacts the children who she would have taught, the parents of those children who no longer have a safe place for their kids to go while they try to work. But it also means that it's harder for her to pay her mortgage, to pay her childcare provider, to go to the local store and get groceries for her family. That is bad for her. It's bad for her children. It's also bad for all of the people who rely on her spending in the economy to keep their families afloat. And that ripple effect is really what defines a recessionary spiral, that you can have some kind of negative 
shock to the system. But if you can support people and keep those core services going and make sure that people have money in their pockets to spend on the things they really need, you can stop it from turning into a deeper recession or a depression because you can stop the cascade of lost jobs, lost income, reduced spending, more layoffs rippling through the community. Are you seeing more thoughtful uh, analysis from state leaders right now around budget cuts in the face of this recession as compared to the Great Recession? I think that state and local leaders right now have been correctly very focused on calling for state and local fiscal relief from the federal government. I think that's incredibly important. Unfortunately, I do think that there is still a default mindset of cutting spending and services to match revenues, even when those revenues are wildly inadequate. I think that one of the things that I try to push back against in the paper There's a natural tendency for policymakers to say things like, well, I can't raise taxes on families that are already struggling, but the costs of these service cuts are so severe to families and communities. And it's also important to understand that while this downturn has had some of the most dramatic effects of any economic crisis in history, those effects have been really unequally shared. So in the paper I talk about data, the Census Bureau has been fielding an emergency survey on a weekly basis called the Pulse Survey since the beginning of the pandemic crisis. And they ask people, have you or someone in your household experienced a loss in employment or a loss in employment income since the since March, since the beginning of the pandemic. What they find is that while about half of people have, which is truly shocking from historical perspective, that means that about half of people haven't experienced that. And the number of people who say that they have lost employment or income is also very dependent on what their prior household income was. So what you see in the data is that this economic crisis thus far has really fallen disproportionately on people who were already receiving lower wages in a more precarious economic position. So among the lowest income households earning less than 35,000 per year, 58% had lost employment income in the period covered by the survey in late May. But only one in three households earning more than 200,000 per year indicated any loss in employment income on the survey. So that means two thirds of richer households have experienced no reduction in income from work since the pandemic started. Those people can afford to contribute more so that the 58% of low-income households who have seen their incomes drop, have lost their jobs, can continue to receive critical services from state and local governments. Unfortunately, the people in that group are also the same people who make the laws. So it's sometimes challenging to uh, to get them to see it that way. So actually increasing taxes during a recession can cause a swifter, healthier recovery, but the taxes should be on the rich. Can you talk about some of the some of the data that shows progressive versus regressive taxes and and why why we have to be careful about where we're getting our revenue from? When economists talk about 
stimulus funding, they often talk about what's called a multiplier. So this is just the idea, if you spend a dollar in the economy as the government, how much additional economic activity do you create with that dollar? And you want to spend as much as you can if you're trying to stimulate the economy on things with high multipliers and spend as little as you can on things with lower multipliers. And what we learn from economic data is that the biggest bang for your buck is direct government purchases of services and transfers to people who are most likely to immediately go out and spend the money. And the reason is that if you give a dollar to a higher income person, what they're likely to do with it is maybe engage in some additional spending, but a lot of that dollar goes directly into savings or into paying down debt, which economically is the same as savings, right? If you're trying to get people to circulate that money in their local economies by buying goods and services. You want to give the money to people who live paycheck to paycheck or have experienced unemployment or for some other reason are more likely to go out and spend every cent of that dollar. And that means lower income people and people who have lost their jobs. And so just like spending, you want to spend in the highest value way. For taxing, you want to raise money in the lowest cost way. So again, you want to focus your taxes on people who have a lot of money in the bank, are really able to ride out this crisis, and are not likely to spend a lot of their additional dollars that means the wealthy, high-income folks, people who have not experienced disruptions in employment. And in fact, if you think about those ideas together, if you pair progressive taxes, so taxes that mostly fall on higher-income folks with spending that mostly benefits lower-income folks, you're going to get a big net effect from that, even though ideally again, you would want to just borrow the money. But at any given level of borrowing, even if there is state and local fiscal relief, states should be trying to bolster their economies and provide help for their citizens by increasing progressive taxes and spending that money on core government services and critical supports for low-income people. It will be good for the state economy. You warn in the paper that if uh, state and local governments follow the same sort of austerity path uh, that they did during the smaller recession in 2008, they could possibly turn this crisis into a, quote, long grinding depression nationwide, end quote. Um, I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about that worst case scenario for a minute. How long are we talking and how much worse could it get? I think that you can look to the Great Recession for a guide there. Partly, there's a lot of uncertainty about what the big picture is going to look like even two weeks from now or a month from now, let alone a year from now. A lot of it really depends on the response to the virus, though I would point out that a lot of states aren't doing what they need to be doing in order to contain the virus, which is the most important thing that they can do for their economic recovery. I mean, it could get really, really bad. And it's especially going to be catastrophic if there isn't 
state fiscal relief from the federal government, and if the federal government doesn't step in just generally with the kinds of income supports that states are just not able to provide. So the fact that Congress has allowed the supplemental $600 unemployment insurance payments to lapse is already wreaking havoc in local economies, and that is only going to become worse if Congress does not renew those payments. But also, I think that state policymakers really need to grapple with the ways in which this recession is so severe and the cuts that they're talking about are so stark in comparison to the needs, because needs have actually increased because of the pandemic, that they could be really hobbling their economies for years to come. And one of the things that I think a lot about is education both because it's a huge state budget line item and because I have two kids and no school to send them to. And a lot of other parents are in that same situation. And I think that there has not been a sense of urgency around that problem. The childcare crisis is an economic crisis. Even if states are able to contain the virus enough that they can open restaurants and send people into offices, if there is no childcare state economies cannot function. And that is about the income effects of the state budget cuts, but it's also just needed supports for state economies. And so I think in that way, the depth of this recession is a huge piece of the puzzle, but also the very specific ways in which states and localities have to step up are going to really have long-term ramifications for the country's economy, you know, over the course of the next decades. So if you were a benevolent dictator, and I'm assuming you'd be a benevolent dictator. um, I'd try. what, what uh, What would you do immediately to take action that would help the most people? If I were a state policymaker, I would immediately reopen my state's budget, undo any of the cuts that had been put into place, because as I said, most states passed their budget a couple months ago, and really focus on raising revenue from those who can afford to pay it and plowing it in to direct income supports and core government services. So We need to make sure that people are not getting evicted. There's a huge federal role to play, but state and local policymakers cannot throw up their hands and say that if the federal government doesn't step in, they're just going to let huge swaths of their population become effectively homeless. State policymakers need to look at coronavirus containment, massive investments in contact tracing and other activities to get the virus under control because it's just a predicate to all other economic activity. I am not an expert in that, but it is so important. And I can't think of a single expenditure that would pay more dividends than pandemic control. But beyond that, I think I would like to see policymakers getting much more creative and ambitious about schools and childcare. I think that it's sort of surprising that so many places are either cutting funding for schooling or just hobbling along with their previous budgets and calling it a win, given that 
if schools are going to be open safely in places where there is significant community spread, we need to be thinking about different models of schooling. It cannot be that we just say it's okay to put five-year-olds in front of a laptop for Zoom meetings with 25 other students. It doesn't work. All the evidence indicates it doesn't work. And there hasn't been much talk about what would it look like if we really did a serious mobilization and said, maybe this year we need to cut class sizes to one third. And so we need to triple our national expenditures on schooling. I mean, that's a very bold thing to say, but that's the kind of thinking that I'd like to see policymakers engaging in. And that would be difficult for states and localities to do on their own. But one of the things I talk about in the paper is that there really is a lot of room to raise revenue because many states have upside down tax codes that raise very little from the wealthy. And many states just don't provide high levels of services and so have relatively low taxes to begin with. And I think that those states and localities should really be thinking about the decisions that we make over the next couple of years will affect our residents' lives forever. And it's time to start thinking a lot bigger, but there is money there. And something we'd like to ask our guests is, why why do you do this work? You know, I I actually got into state and local work working in Washington, D.C., which is my home and uh, is the home that I've lived in the longest in my life. And for me, it's been incredibly meaningful to get to see the ways in which decisions that policymakers make at the state and local level. And DC is an interesting place because it's um, state, city, county, school district all rolled into one. The way that those decisions affect people's lives every day. And DC is also stricken with some of the worst inequality in the nation. And I think it's indicative of the kinds of conversations we need to be having as a country that We live in a society where we do, in fact, have enough money to solve a lot of these problems. And every day we make choices about whether we are going to solve these problems. And to me, it's very difficult to go to sleep at night knowing that there are people all across the country who have kids just like I do. And we worry about our kids every day. And many of those moms aren't sure where their kid's next meal is going to come from or how they're going to have a safe place for them to stay. And that is just a huge failing, I think, in the United States and in my local government. And I think that tax policy is often seen as dry, but it's really, it's a deeply moral conversation. And I hope that we can have the conversation about tax policy and budget policy in a way that recognizes that. Thank you for making the time. And really, thank you so much for this paper. When 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 it came out, we were all passing it around because it was such a, a light in a pretty dark time. So we really appreciate your work in this and, and all the uh, the good thinking you've done. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.